So over the last week, Reed, I forwarded two articles to you. One about Taco Bell introducing its new wine, Jalapeno Noir. Oh, gosh. And then not a couple days later, I found another article that a Red Lobster is debuting the Mountain Dew Margarita. They're calling it the Dew Garita. I mean, I, I don't know when the last time I've been to Red Lobster, but I it's pretty well sealed the deal there. I'm not going back, probably. Well, this brings up the fact that maybe in the pandemic, we've developed some unusual food tastes here in America. And I found an article. These are America's favorite bizarre food combinations. So some of them are pretty straightforward. I mean, French fries and chocolate milkshakes. I remember doing that in high school. Peanut butter and apples. I actually had peanut butter and apples this weekend. We also see on the list here, chocolate and popcorn. Well, we've had chocolate covered all kinds of stuff, right? So I mean, that's that's not crazy. Sour cream and onion chips and chocolate. What? What is that? Maybe you have that at a wedding now for the chocolate fountain. Instead of just the fruit, you have some sour cream and onion chips scattered around. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physicians' practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome back to Touchpoint. If you are a returning listener, welcome for the first time. If uh, you're new to the show, this is episode 190. So if you are new, there's plenty you can go back and check out, but don't worry about that. Just hang with us here and check out what we've uh, got for you today. I am Reed Smith. On the other side of the microphone is Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed. 190. That means we're only 10 away from getting to that number 200. That's right. And that doesn't seem like that far away. And realistically, it's not, I guess, but still that's 10 weeks. So that's like the end of the year or something. I don't know. I, I can't even keep up anymore. But, you know, fun fact, we've done 63 episodes during quarantine. No, I don't know. I don't know how many we've done, but <laughs> it's been a lot, it feels like. So, but we're back for another week, back for another episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, telling a friend, sharing this around. We continue to see the number of listeners each and every month go up, which is uh, kind of amazing. And so we, we appreciate that. If you're wondering what in the world you're listening to or want to know more about this show, you can find out more on our website, touchpoint.health. Certainly you can find out more about the episode that you're listening to now, but you can also find out more about other shows on the network or this show as a whole. So we got a lot of great ones. A new one that's out from our friends over at True North. It's Healthcare Insight for Marketers. They're going to have those coming out every other week. And then uh, we've got several other good ones on the network. So go there, check that out. Sign up for the TPS report while you're there, our weekly newsletter. Some really cool uh, stories from around the industry aggregated by our show hosts and some other quick links to uh, conferences and the like, which we'll talk a little bit more later. Let's uh, take a brief pause right here, and then we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. 
sure is. And read, consider this, 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Today, we're going to be talking about the importance of improving your patient access strategies and some of the shifts that are occurring. When we say patient access in healthcare, what that means is ways that you can improve the ability for patients to connect and make appointments with their doctors and and so on. We are last several months, but I mean, here we are. And certainly, you know, due to everything that's gone on, it's changed our marketing activities, certainly. It's changed our personal and professional daily lives and, you know, a little bit of everything. So, you know, here we are. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, how it's changed our daily lives, because one of the most important things when we're thinking about patient access strategies is how have consumer shopping patterns shifted? We found an article from McKenzie that actually highlights 10 charts based on the research they've done over the past couple of months, and it's called The Great Consumer Shift, 10 charts that show how U.S shopping behavior is changing. It's important to understand just general shopping patterns because we know they're going to influence how they shop with us. There's a ton in here, but I, you know, I enjoy kind of going through these general kind of behavior-based, you know, insights. I think it's kind of fun and interesting. The first one they call out, probably something that was already true, but certainly is even more true. Digital shopping is here to stay. You know, we've seen the things like the Instacarts and Amazon and like all these things that make things more convenient and that consumer intent you know, has only increased, they say, especially with the essentials in, in home entertainment categories. So things like I just mentioned. And what's happened is, is people that didn't try these before, I'm probably a good example of like using HelloFresh, right? Where you get the meals delivered. I didn't do it before. Probably wouldn't have tried it before, quite honestly. That's a reason I don't have to go to the grocery store as much, or I don't have to go somewhere as much. So especially in the initial weeks and, and months of the pandemic, that was something that, you know, I tried, liked, we continued to use. They say here that um, they expect growth of 35% in things such as like over-the-counter medicines, groceries, household supplies, and personal care products. A lot of those are essential, as they say. And the second trend they see too is that this growth is coming from primarily millennials and high-income earners. They're the lead when it comes to shopping online. That's not to say Gen X hasn't shifted. We have you and I, but not at the same scale. And Gen Z has really shifted its online purchasing in a very specific way through apparel, footwear, at-home entertainment, and food takeout. 
you know, the first two that we just talked about was, you know, kind of categorically around this idea of embracing online, you know, and doing things online and seeing that increase. The next two that we talk about or that they point out here is a real shift, they say, in how consumers' brand loyalty aligns. Consumers are switching brands at an unprecedented rate. So they talk about 75% of consumers are trying a new shopping behavior in response to the economic pressure, store closings, changing priorities, et cetera. 36% of consumers are trying a new product brand. And finally, 25% incorporating new private label branding. I think a lot of this, even that last point you made you know, about millennials or high income earners, some of this is out of convenience and, and the people that are creating that best experience certainly you know, are probably getting people to, to give them a try. They call out here too that Gen Z this time and high earners are the most prone to switching. While millennials are, are the most driving online, they're not that prone to switching, but Gen Z certainly are. And next to it, they say here that brands need to ensure that they have strong availability and convey value. There's a number of reasons why they're shifting brands, but availability, convenience, and value are leading the pack. And this highlights the need to quickly become aware of when shoppers are migrating brands in your marketplace, and then manage the logistics to ensure that you're shifting to meet these new needs. And think about that for health systems. That means you have to be really on top of understanding how your market trends are shifting because they are shifting. The next kind of grouping is a trend that highlights the need uh, for hygiene, or as they call it, going to quote, hygiene transparency. U.S. consumers are changing how they shop in response to health and safety concerns. So technologies that enhance hygiene, so particularly contactless activities such as food and grocery delivery, curbside pickup, et cetera, are taking off. There's also a strong intent to continue that, continue those contactless activities in the U.S. Uh, They've got a data point in here that 79% of consumers intend to continue or increase their uses of self-checkout in retail after COVID-19. So there's some of it that's hygiene related, right? But I think some of it is also convenience. A lot of times with me, I already know at Academy or Dick's Sporting Goods or whatever, like what what I need. Mm -hmm. So why do I need to go in there? Forget the hygiene part. It's just a convenience thing for me. In a lot of cases, of just like, look, I already know what I need. I don't need to look around. My wife and I were thinking about uh, getting our flu shot soon, and we were looking for where there is drive-through flu shot clinics because we don't feel the need to go inside of a clinic. Contactless is a trend. They say here millennials and Gen Z are the widest adopters of contactless activities. But think about that in your health system. If you have contactless capabilities, you should be promoting that. The next two trends that we're going to cover are characterized by McKenzie as being back to basics and value. So the first is around consumer shopping intent is focused on essentials. 40% of U.S. consumers have reduced their spending in general, and they continue to reduce their spending around non-essentials. They're seeing that even among those with higher incomes. Obviously, they're spending, but the intent to buy discretionary products are lagging this year. I don't think it's a big surprise, is it? No. It's going to be harder, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I go back and forth on some of that in the sense that what does that really mean? 
Because discretionary, you think about like trips and vacations and things like that. The ability to be able to get out and disconnect and go to the lake or whatever is maybe becoming more important. So kind of how you categorize the essential versus discretionary piece, I think, is probably up for debate a little bit with some of these things. But it makes sense. We're focusing on you know the, the what we need piece. Related to this, right, in the back to basics category is that they want value for their money. Uh, There's an increasing consumer focus on value, especially for essential categories. We've seen that in some of the the trends that we've noticed around patient behavior. They're going to stay with that organization that they feel is providing them most value. And brand loyalty becomes very important in the healthcare space if you're instilling that trust with them. The next two that uh, McKenzie points out, they characterize as being attributed to the quote-unquote rise of the homebody economy. <laughs> I feel like this is a lunch and learn I should do at the office or something, the rise of the homebody economy. Well, that's you all over. <laughs> that's, that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So number eight on the list, Americans are changing how they spend their time at home. Domestic activities, media, news. So they're spending more of their time on these activities. Uh, I'm even thinking about things like church. As you would go do that, well, now you're doing it at home. And a lot of people are still doing it at home as they're kind of waiting for things to you know, get back to normal, I guess. Or maybe there's more of the safety precautions or what have you. So you're doing more of these things at home. The intent to eat more at home uh, has strengthened significantly, they say, over the past three months. And I can attest to that. Now, some of that, I think, goes hand in hand with like not having certain activities. Instead of us running around to a bunch of kids' activities, sports, dance, gymnastics, things like that, that sometimes facilitate the need of eating out, driving through Chick-fil-A or whatever, because you're out and you're dropping people and picking people up and running around. And it kind of leads you down that path a little bit. Certainly, the use of popular online entertainment platforms have skyrocketed. You got HBO Max to Netflix to Apple TV Plus and Hulu and Prime and all that kind of good stuff that people have used. But I haven't paid much attention to like the game stuff like PS4 and and all that. But I assume all that is probably up as well. They also talk in here, which I think this is an interesting one, the, the investment in at-home fitness equipment. You know, for the longest time, you couldn't find a bicycle at any store or online. Like they're just sold out everywhere. That and trampolines and like playscapes because people were spending more time at home. That in-home, at-home fitness as well as the eating at home and things like that, the at-home activities have really skyrocketed. Part of that is due to the fact the ninth trend they're seeing here is that Americans are concerned about getting back to those regular activities. And this isn't just healthcare. We've talked a lot about what the consumer's perceptions are of getting back to the clinic or the hospital. But this is across all different activities. 73% of consumers are still hesitant to resume these regular activities outside of their home. Here's the top three that they cite are issues outside of healthcare. Going to a hair salon, get their hair cut. Going to a gym and going to a restaurant. And anything that involves a shared environment or public transportation. So ride sharing, air travel, going to crowded spaces like sporting events, that sort of thing. All of that stuff is kind of part and parcel with the fact that we're all concerned about resuming regular activity because of that invisible enemy of the pandemic. Well, the 10th and final is a fact that behaviors vary by consumer segment. So they say great consumer shift tends to vary by consumer segments. So five consumer segments driven by optimism, health, financial concerns, each relatively a similar size. The five segments exhibit the consumer trends to a different degree and have the following characteristics. 
you start out with the affluent and the uninfected. Sorry, the affluent and the unaffected. Hopefully they're the same. <laughs> Maybe the uninfected too. I don't know. So these consumers express general optimism about the future. So 20% they're about higher uh, than the overall U.S. consumer population. So they skew mail and they make more $100,000 a year. As opposed to the next segment, which is called uprooted and underemployed. These are the consumers that are feeling the major impact of both their finances and health due to the economy that we're in right now and the pandemic. And they're cautious about where they're spending their money and they have low optimism about future economic conditions. This is a classic haves and have nots kind of scenario here. But then there are other segments here too, right? Yeah, so one is a little bit kind of in between these two groups, which is financially secure but anxious. So these are folks that are typically 65 or older. They're generally pessimistic about the uh, economic conditions, and it's had a big impact on their routine. And then there's those people that are out trying to make their ends meet. And these consumers are being cautious about how they spend money, and they feel that their jobs and job security have been heavily impacted by the pandemic. This group has a significant representation for minority groups and rural populations. And these are the people that are feeling the most angst about the current situation. And then finally, the fifth group, which uh, I aspire to be in one day, is the disconnected and retired group. (laughs) Categorically, most of these folks are retired. They're over 65. Uh, They have a lower income level than the financially secure, but the anxious segment, but but they're pretty optimistic. They're not really keeping up with a lot. It's one of those things that, no, they don't have a paycheck, but they're secure to some extent. They're not going to work every day. And so they're kind of in their own little ecosystem, whether that be in uh, senior living or 55 plus communities. They're playing golf. They're hanging out with their friends and everybody's kind of you know in that bubble, if you will. If you think about those five customer segments, it becomes really important as you start to overlay that with what you thought your existing personas are in your marketplace and see if there's existing trends. What we'll do, Reed, is after the break, we'll come back and we'll talk a, a little bit about some recent rules that have been put in place earlier this year that can impact the way patients or even potential patients access their information and subsequently make appointments online. And then we'll also wrap before the interview with um, a a secret tool that they're saying is coming Uh out of COVID that could potentially help increase patient access. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the recent rule changes that CMS and ONC have issued uh, regarding data access requirements and you know, really what that means, what, what that impact looks like for providers, payers, vendors, et cetera. 
this gets a little wonky, a little technical here, but um, when we're talking about CMS, we're talking about the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and ONC is the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. And these were rules that were published earlier this year in March, and they really specify around two specific things. One's around information blocking, and the other is about interoperability. Let me tackle the information blocking, read and see if this makes sense. Okay, All right. so- One of their rules establishes new regulations to prevent information blocking practices and anti-competitive behaviors. So it's been traditional, maybe not that widely known, I guess, that healthcare providers, IT products, health information exchanges, other information networks are notoriously segmented and not open. Once you get into a health system's electronic medical record, they don't make it that easy for you to transfer out of. And a lot of that is around using technologies that are very much in the silo. We've talked about this before in the show, interoperability, that sort of thing. Now, this new rule ensures that providers have technologies to allow to communicate outside of their own system. They focus a lot on usability, user experience, interoperability, and security. And that's through the use of these APIs. The APIs are designed to support a patient's access and control of their electronic health information. They can easily obtain their information for free. And there are even recommendations around using a regulated smartphone app so that you can actually have your patient records freely move from one health system to another. That sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Yeah, that makes total sense. Is the kind of one of those things you read through some of this and you think, wait, so this doesn't exist now? Like, well, you can't do yeah, this exactly. or whatever, right? The other piece that they're talking about here is the interoperability and in, in patient access piece. So you talk about information blocking. So interoperability. So the rule requires the health plans in, in the Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, CHIP, and through federal exchanges to share claims data electronically with patients. The rule establishes that, uh, you know, the con- conditions of participation, basically, for all those uh, in the Medicare and Medicaid participating hospitals, requi- they require them to send electronic notifications to other healthcare facilities, community providers, practitioners, et cetera, when a patient's admitted, discharged, or transferred. So the goal here is to improve coordination of care. Like it makes my head hurt thinking about like, how does that even work to send electronic notifications to other facilities, providers, practitioners, et cetera, on admission, transfer and discharge. Yeah. As a whole, that makes total sense. You know, we're going towards coordination of care, efficiency, that kind of thing. These rules are standardizing the way we that could be done. It's almost like a framework. It doesn't get into any mandates. There's no financial mandates around this, but it certainly lays the groundwork for what the future could be. And this open sharing of your information and, and the ability to transfer your care from one place to another, that's the intent here, Reed. So we talk about all this consumerism trends at the top of the show. This lays right into this. Because we're setting up a standard now where you can go to any health system, any doctor, any clinic. I mean, it doesn't mean you're going to be covered by insurance, but you'll be able to then transfer your information to and from without any cost, without any penalties, and make it easy as possible. Today, it's probably mostly what they're going to do is they're going to scan it and send it as a PDF, right? But ultimately, we're going to get to the point where we're going to open up health information exchanges across the United States. And that's powerful. So let's talk for a second about how that information actually 
like where it goes and how do you get it and, and some of those kind of things. Well, in most cases, we're talking about patient portals. Uh-oh. And most hospitals have a patient portal. So let's talk about the patient portal in the post-COVID world. Ooh, now patient portals. We've talked about that before on our show. In fact, the last time we talked about this was back in 2017. And at that point, we were talking about usability in the patient portal. So if you want to go back, find episode number 12. That's how far back it is. (laughs) I'll save everybody a minute. Don't go back and find episode 12. (laughs) There's no need. You're not going to learn anything there. This article from Patient Engagement HIT was just published on the 18th of this month. They actually interview a number of people that are working at Epic and Cerner and all these other EMRs out there about the patient portal. They start off by saying, this is kind of a a very lofty statement, the patient portal is something like a jack of all trades in patient engagement technology. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, yeah, I agree with that statement. I mean, I think it is a little bit of a catch-all. It is. And I think it was originally not designed to be that much of a thing. The patient portal was really a place where way back when, back in episode 12, right, in our history, in the touchpoint history, Mm -hmm. it was uh, designed at that point in time to do just things like simple things like patient data access, online appointment scheduling, and maybe even prescription refills. That was mandated by a a law that was put in place in 2009 called the Tech Act. And this article goes on to say that when the coronavirus pandemic hit us, we basically were forced to move everything to a digital space. And with that came a dramatic shift in the way people look at patient portals. Dramatic shift. (laughs) I don't know. Do Do you think there's been a dramatic shift? No, I don't. I think this article, because they all are talking to the EMR vendors, maybe they're a little bit slanted and biased in their in their reporting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there has been a massive adoption towards like things like telehealth, remote patient monitoring, all the things that we've you know, go back over the, just the last couple episodes that we've been talking about. And typically, these are kind of driven through from your patient portal because we're we're looking at dates like two thousand nine. And in my head, what's funny about that is like, that doesn't seem like that long ago, but wow, that is, that's a long time ago, man. That's a decade ago. Yeah. Well, over you know, a decade. I mean, it's, it seems like it was just like here recently, but you know, when you start thinking about that and you think about people being able to take control of their own health, that's not happening. I mean, they're talking here about it, you know, as of 2019, that 90% of hospitals offered a patient portal. 72% of those allowed you to view, download, and transmit documents and things like that. 62% uh, said that less than one quarter of their patient population registered for the portal. (laughs) There you go. So now we're getting to it. A third of hospitals said that less than 10% have adopted the tool. While fewer than 10% of hospitals said most of their patients have adopted. So, you know, there was a big push some years ago, obviously, like that two night to the, you know, meaningful use and all that kind of stuff where, you know, you needed to get people to sign up for the portal. Signing up and using is two different things. And we've talked about this with app development, right? It's not about building the app. It's about getting people to adopt the app. You know, it's, it's the same thing. Well, that was because of meaningful use, which is no longer an issue. Remember, they were incenting hospitals 
to do this, right? And they were giving them money. Well, that's no longer, that's been kind of folded into other federal programs. They say that there's been now a shift of truly consumer-centric patient portal development, integrating appointment scheduling, chatbots, text message outreach, other types of engagement workflows. And they say, you know, in part because of other trends like open table, forcing the restaurant business to kind of shift their online scheduling, airline industries, et cetera. And they say that the healthcare industry although slow and steady, is beginning to catch up. Now, I don't think many of the people writing this uh, article have actually gone into the Epic patient portal lately because that stuff's still not there, but it's aspirational, right? Yeah, I mean, to say it's caught up is probably not true. But they do point out in here that, you know, early in the pandemic, so the non-urgent care shut down. So, you know, we shut down all the non-essential services and yielded a spike in patient portal usage just like we're having to use Zoom and Teams and all these types of things, clinics and hospitals had to cancel, reschedule, you know, all these types of things, appointments and procedures and check with people. uh, How essential is this? Do we need to do it now? That kind of thing. You know, some of it being, you know, kind of temporary in the way that they were doing it. But what it's really done, much like we've talked about those consumer behaviors earlier, it's really kind of shifted folks to really being okay and comfortable in this more, you know, virtual world. Yeah, I did get messages that says uh, we offer telehealth appointments, but then I clicked into my patient portal and it gave me a link outside of it. Um, So there's that. But they also say that it's being used a lot for offsite COVID testing sites, which are, you know, standing up across the country. They were using the patient portal as a way to engage with patients to connect and even to transmit the results through the patient portal. That's a great use case. And they see that that's going to continue to expand. And they even predict in this article, Reid, that the ability for patient portals to manage COVID-19 isn't over because there's this entire vaccine rollout that the patient portal will be instrumental in supporting. So I'm talking about that the use of the portal to you know better understand population, communication availability, et cetera, the process for a vaccine and scheduling to receive it is going to be going through kind of this registration check-in process. And that's kind of where the portal comes in. I'll be curious to see how kind of how all this goes, but Talking about the portal and the electronic health record, those are things that are going to ultimately help these providers understand how to issue the vaccine, uh, they say, in an equitable fashion. So, you know, the ability to prioritize high-risk individuals or, you know, certain populations that maybe need it versus others. So that that is, you know, something hopefully that will bear out to be true. I hope so, too. Uh, One thing that we do know, and even though this is very lofty statements, it says health IT experts agree that this is what a portal is designed to do. And they want to make sure that we keep continuing to look at the portal as a way to continue engaging with patients, because this will not be the final storm that our healthcare industry will weather. I think it's aspirational. I certainly think that you and I have talked about various different competing interests for the consumer's time and outside entrants that have a design around user experience and engagement much, much better than the patient portal does. So who knows? Well, I guess we'll see where the patient portal evolves to, right? Uh, we all will, because apparently we're all going to have to use it. But ultimately, does this solve the patient access problem? I recently had the chance to sit down with Dr. Tashfim Ekram from Luma Health. He's a practicing physician who started a company that's designed to solve this whole 
access problem, the whole problem of making sure that patients can access their care much more easier with doctors. And so I sat down with him and had a, a, a good conversation. So after the break, let's listen in, and then we'll be back to wrap up the show. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts segment of the podcast. And today I am delighted to be talking with Dr. Tashfim Ekram, someone that I just recently got to know on the phone. We just had a brief conversation, but I learned so much in that little brief conversation that I just could not wait to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Tashfim, before we get into the topic at hand, people listening in may not know about you and your background and what you do. Do you mind sharing a brief history of yourself? Yeah. So my name is Tashfim Ekram. I'm the uh, chief medical officer at Luma Health. And by training, I'm a physician. I currently split my time working as a physician. I did my medical training um, in Michigan, at University of Michigan in Arbor, and then spent some of my early years working in Southeast Michigan. Um, and a lot of the experience that I had um, working there actually kind of inspired me to want to do something about the healthcare system, which is what really was the genesis of, of Luma Health um, in trying to solve some of these systemic problems in our healthcare system. My father was a techie. Um, I grew up on the West Coast in the Silicon Valley. And so at heart, I'm kind of a, a nerd or a, a computer geek. And so when I kind of came to my career and trying to figure out what to do and um, some of the inspiration of both Luma Health came from some of my personal experience in healthcare, but also some of the things I'd seen um, that technology can accomplish. And I thought it was a great way to kind of bring those two together. And that's kind of where I am in my in my career. What Luma Health does, and in part is trying to solve a very systemic challenge that the healthcare industry has, which is access to care. Is is that fair to say? Yeah, no, that's definitely fair to say. And I, and I think maybe to like kind of drive home how that kind of came about. Um, what was really challenging was that Southeast Michigan for those maybe who may not be familiar, um, has a very ch- challenging patient population. Um, not only do patients have difficulty access to care, but they're kind of sicker than the average patient. And so you're going to get a compounding of different factors, making it a very challenging patient to take care of, but also very rewarding when you're able to kind of accomplish all of the goals. What was really challenging to me was that simple kind of bricks and mortar kind of thing about running practices was just really difficult. Patients would complain to me saying, hey, I'm looking for an appointment, but the nearest appointment available is two, three weeks to months out when they had an acute concern now. But to them, you know, the urgency is not there because the average patient may not really understand what their symptoms are. And by the time they waited for that appointment, they've already had an event that happened that would change the, the course of their life or their disease. So they've had a stroke, have had a heart attack. And what was really sad about the whole process was that I can tell you on a daily basis, there were openings the next day. It was just that we didn't have the workflows and the, the, the ability to match patients, to find patients who needed a more urgent appointment tomorrow to get them in. Having worked within the health system myself for a number of years, I understand that there is sometimes what is presented to the patients, right, externally, is a lot different than what we actually know actually happens behind the scenes. In fact, a lot of my job is is focused on trying to make that frictionless experience occur for the, the patients that come to like websites and things like that. This problem, the systemic problem about access to, to physician calendars, that's something that is deep rooted, isn't it? You know, at one level, it's, it's relatively simple compared to a lot of other healthcare. I mean, practicing medicine, it, like I'm talking about just actually delivery of healthcare as a physician, it's, it's tough. And so you think, oh, this is kind of the simple part. But, you know, from the patient standpoint, I mean, it's enough for them to have to, you know, deal with the, the disease that they have. 
But then to put on top of that, that they have to navigate the healthcare system themselves and be their own advocate and stuff. And so that becomes almost equally challenging for patients. Being on the other side as a healthcare provider, oftentimes we don't appreciate what the patient had to do to come in for an appointment or what they had to do to get that appointment. You know, they may be only coming in for a 15 minute visit or a 30 minute visit, but you know, the question comes up is that, you know, what did they have to do to get to that? What were the process they do in terms of calling, finding the right physician, finding the right time in their calendar? And then, you know, especially um, when you're taking care of um, patients who are of a low financial status, like they don't have the luxury to necessarily just take off 15, 30 minutes of their day and be, be able to come in. You know, they often be working on shifts. For them to come in for that 15-minute appointment, 30-minute appointment, actually means that they're blocking off their whole day. And, and I think as physicians, sometimes... It's difficult to appreciate what does that really mean for the patient. Yeah, I often get calls from people that are trying to make appointments to the health system that I've worked at in the past. And, you know, they say, hey, do you have an inside track? Because I've been trying to find appointments, uh, calling them. I was on hold at the call center for a little bit. They couldn't find the right availability. Do you, is there an inside track? And that's very unfortunate that we're putting a lot of that stress on the patient themselves, because as you said, right, they're already in a state where they're dealing with whatever that condition is that's driving them to make that call. What are some of the things that may have led to this? Or were there, are there any roots of this challenge? Because there's so many different players and such a relatively, you know, disjointed, so to say, um, healthcare experience in the US that I think that's what has caused a lot of the processes that are in place, because you have different kind of cooks in the kitchen, so to say. Um, whereas if you looked at some healthcare systems that are more nationalized, for better or for worse, at least they have just one big player in the space. Um, and so they're able to kind of streamline it and you're, you know, you're kind of interacting with one, one entity. And so I think a lot of those things kind of get um, wiped out. Of course, there's other problems with that. But just generally speaking, I think that's what kind of drives some of the complexity of the healthcare system. I mean, just from a patient standpoint, you're going to try to go see a doctor, but you have to make sure that the doctor you're going to go see is covered by your insurance. And then you also, you know, the question comes up, you know, can I pay for this? And you know, how do I get it? And then once you decide, finally, this is the physician I'm going to go see, and this is the one I'm going to go, then you got to call them and schedule. So, I mean, there's like, you know, you're just, the problem is, I think in order to get healthcare served to you, you have to go through several players, so to say. And, you know, and I think that's what some, unfortunately, some drive some of the challenges and some of the, the un, an unpleasant experience patients will experience going through the, you know, the quote unquote healthcare journey in, in, in the U.S., We've often characterized that, and I'm coming from a digital marketing perspective, those are elements of consumerism. And these are expectations that maybe 10, 15 years ago, the patient may not have overtly expressed, but the more we're driving towards the model where consumers are taking more control of where they're going and how they make decisions, suddenly these consumeristic trends come to play. The coverage and the cost of the coverage and uh, accessibility and availability, those things become very, very important. Another element of uh, consumerism is convenience. And that's one thing that, you know, 10 years ago, when I started working in, in health systems, when I would ask, you know, why are, do you not have office hours at, you know, after 6 p.m. or on Saturdays and Sundays, where it's more convenient for patients, you would think that I was asking the, the physicians a completely wrong question. But how do you see, like, those elements of consumerism influencing how you're per- perceiving the problem and how you're starting to solve the problem at Luma? Having kind of, of, of the mindset of that, like, m- medicine is becoming more and more consumerized of how can we go to where the quote-unquote consumer lives or really it's patients and being able to kind of almost replicate a similar experience that they see in other 
quote unquote verticals or other places where they're interacting with other businesses, so to say. So, you know, I mean, if you think about when you go make an appointment with your hairdresser or you go make an appointment with for an oil change or, you know, all the variety of other experiences people have, why is it that there's a certain experience and they have expectation around that? And why does it have to be any different in medicine? When we were trying to design and trying to figure out how we can make um, healthcare more accessible um, through some of the solutions that we offer at Luma Health, we, went, we took that in mind. The other part that we really focused on was, and this is, again, kind of goes back to some of my early experience in Southeast Michigan, was that one of the kind of the models that we like to, you know, internally um, circulate um, is this kind of concept of no patient left behind. And, and we didn't want to create a solution that drives access for a subset of patients. There's already is a discrepancy between the, um, and when it comes to access to care and, and actually even more more importantly, health outcomes, there's a quite big of a gap between um, individuals who have a higher wealth and have higher ability to connect to physicians versus those who don't. And unfortunately, as the financial gap widens or the income gap widens between those two groups, so does the healthcare outcomes and so does healthcare access widen. And what we really wanted to do was we wanted to create a solution that didn't worsen that gap. How do most people this day, regardless of your social or economic status, how do they communicate? It's text messaging. You know, 98% of Americans have access to a textable phone and a great majority of them, interesting enough, respond to text messages. And if you kind of look at it from a technology standpoint, it's not as cool, it's not as sexy to be say, hey, we don't have an app. But, you know, our real goal was to be able to say, hey, look, we can go, we can service um, patients that live in Southeast Michigan, in rural parts of America, or in the central parts of San Francisco, where, you know, the technology is a lot more pervasive. But really, the goal was, again, no patient left behind. What, are you telling me that the patient portal app is not that good of a tool to use for all patients? I'm just kidding. Of course it isn't. I, you know, over the years I've been spending in this space, it's like these patient portal apps are like most of the other apps that are on my cell phone. I often look at my iPhone as like an app wasteland because a lot of times you just download the app once and use it. I, I love this idea about um, going away from the app, becoming appless, because that actually has roots in an equity play. It's a very different, richer experience if you can, if you have an app at your hand and you can do certain things. But you'd be surprised in terms of just the simple kind of access to care and being able to communicate and being able to book appointments and stuff. You can drive a lot of that just by simple text messaging. And the Institute of Medicine, you know, they looked at how there's this um, widening. Um, the problem that they were trying to address was that there was increasing costs in our in our country compared to other nations. There was decreasing. Or, or kind of stagnant patient satisfaction. And finally, there were a worsening health outcomes through giving patients greater access to care drove better patient outcomes. And then inherently by driving that and, and, and improving um, outcomes and, and workflows within an organization can drive down costs. As we're talking about this, I also having that experience in the healthcare system know that there's a the behind the scenes, it is a little bit more complex because I've often had conversations with uh, physicians about exposing some of their calendar to online appointment scheduling, which is, you know, another different touch point, so to speak. And oftentimes, uh, it, it's really hard to, uh, to, to have physicians look at their calendar as a little bit more fluid. So tell me a little bit about that. I think one of the main challenges that comes across um, when exposing physician schedules is that they're worried that patients um, are going to start booking appointments that are not appropriate for what they're trying to get accomplished. The, the typical experience of way patients book appointments is that you call in and the scheduling staff have a 
whether in their if they're smaller practices, then they kind of have it, you know, in their head. But they have there's a protocol of like how you schedule an appointment. You know, there's a level of urgency. You know, are you a new patient, an old patient? Um, you know, the kind of insurance you have. As you're kind of walking through this process, the scheduling staff, when you're on the phone, are able to kind of say, okay, so based on what you've told me, or you know what you're looking for, here are the set of appointments. Um, you know that that we need to book you to, and so then we'll book you for that. I think the fear that some that the physicians have is that if you just open up the scheduling, kind of very open table esque, you know, where you can book a, a table to um, uh, for at a restaurant. I think the fear that they have is that a patient is coming in with something that needs to be acutely seen, and they book out an appointment three weeks out, or the reverse, right? They don't actually need to be seen tomorrow, and so there's there's an appointment tomorrow that I'd like to be able to keep for um, patients who may need that more urgently, and they book an appointment tomorrow, and so. I don't like waiting on the phone and I maybe, you know, um, maybe I'm, I'm impatient, but what's interesting is they, they looked at actually um, phone wait times across different industries or different verticals. And unfortunately is that healthcare had the worst. And it's, it's kind of sad if you think about it, like a patient's already has so much challenges trying to get access to care. And now they're sitting on waiting on the phone and they've actually taken the initiative to call you to try to get an appointment. And I was sitting on the phone for 20 minutes, you know, that's going to be so discouraging as a patient they put the phone down. So- One of the things that you're describing is uh, a concept called necessary friction, right? When we think about trying to create frictionless experiences for, for patients, I think that leads to when you think about, you use the open table reference, right? It's easy to book an appointment or book a reservation at your restaurant an open table, and it's just as easy not to go. So the friction has been eliminated, but that also causes a lot of reservations that don't get fulfilled. I think that uh, in healthcare, of all places, there is a concept of bringing in some necessary friction. You do need to guide them to the right place. You need to get the right information, but do it in a way that doesn't feel like the onus is on that patient. What we have found is that when you give too many options to patients, it it becomes too confusing. Um, And so really, when you're like designing these these, these processes that patients can be interact with. It's, it's trying to just keep it as simple as possible. And you'd be surprised that um, I think sometimes we add a little bit too much complexity into a relatively simple process. And then, and then what unfortunately that results is, is that um, it may, you know, create extra workflow you know, issues or, you know, extra process, but really ultimately what unfortunately translates to is a poor patient experience, which is kind of what we forget. Um, and so it's, it's important to you know, keep that in mind. And, you know, when we when we've designed some of these scheduling workflows for some of our partners that we work with, um, you know, we really try to emphasize to them, hey, look, you know, you don't want to offer like when you're asking a question, for example, it's much better, for example, to just give them a few options rather than give them a laundry list of things. And then they have to filter through that. One of the important things that we've tried to do is that we try to be data driven. Um, and so when even, you know, and, and we're always constantly learning. Um, and so when we're, for example, creating these scheduling, online scheduling workflows, we track, for example, do patients drop off at a certain point? You know, are there certain questions that we're asking? Are they too complex or are they not important or whatever it is? So if, if you have a drop off rate of 10%, those are 10, those are that 10% of patients are potential patients that are looking for access to healthcare are either not getting it or going somewhere else. And again, no patient left behind. So being data driven and, and, and making sure that we're optimizing the patient experience um, so that we can connect, you know, the physicians to their, their patients and vice versa. Now that we are in the midst of the COVID pandemic, right, the public health crisis that we're faced with, we've seen a dramatic push now to serve telemedicine or or virtual care to many of our patients. I'm curious about your perspective on that. Do you think that that is now just another great way to, to provide more access or does that add more burden to some of these patients that struggle already with getting access? We've been talking about telehealth before you know, the COVID pandemic for some time. And, um, you know, some organizations have adopted it. 
But I think we were certainly thrust into it, you know, all of a sudden as a nation as a whole, both from patients and and providers. I think we've come to accept that some of healthcare needs to be done um, over a kind of virtual environment. But I think more importantly, I think we've become also more comfortable with it, both just as providers and patients. I think I trained and I, you know, I never in med school or in my residency, I never did telemedicine and that we, we never even talked about it. It was never even came up. We're so used to, as physicians, putting our hands on our patients and having the patient in front of us. And so I think there's an inherent kind of like uncomfortableness, you know, when the patient's not in front of you, like, am I missing something? You know, is there, is there something going on that I'm just I'm not be able to pick up? And same for patients. I think patients are more comfortable when they're sitting in front of you, you know, and, and getting the level of access to care and, and the delivery of healthcare just seems different. But I think, you know, and when we were thrust into this, I think both as patients, we became more comfortable and as providers, we have suddenly more, more com- become more comfortable. But I think what is really important to realize, though, is that and this kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier, is that I think this can be a great way to broaden access to care for our patients. There are patients who will have financial challenges getting access to, you know, having a phone that you can download an app to get Zoom on it, or they just may not have the technical capabilities or understanding of how to even do that. So unfortunately, this will not solve access to care for a lot. But I think there is a significant portion of patients who still can kind of get that through that hurdle. And get access to care, and they couldn't. And what's really important here, actually, I think what we realize is that we sometimes underappreciate, again, as physicians, what it takes for a patient to get in the door. A 15-minute visit, what that translates for the patient is, is, is a loss of day of work. They cannot just take 15 minutes off their day. It's like, okay, I have to take half a day off or, or a full day off because that's just how you know, their work is. And the patients that have to do that are coming from lower social and economic status. And so it's not easy. When they take that one day off, that has repercussions for weeks for them. These, you know, some of these patients are living check, paycheck to paycheck. And so oftentimes what often happens is they have to make a decision. Do I, you know, sacrifice one day of salary or do I try to go for health? And oftentimes, unfortunately, it goes the wrong way. Well, from a healthcare perspective, it kind of goes the wrong way where the patient says, you know what, I'm, I, I'm just not going to go to this appointment. But now imagine it's going to be much easier for someone of that status to say, hey, but I can still take 15 minutes out of my day. I can continue to work and just get jump on a telehealth call. This may be able to drive access to care for a lot of patients. Again, you know, we have to still realize that it's not the panacea. It's not going to cure it all because there will be patients who don't have a phone that can do a Zoom or, you know, whatever it is. But I think there will be some patients who have access to that and can now get access to care where they otherwise would have opted out of it. It's not lost on me. There's also this trend of retail healthcare where Walmart and others are now coming in and providing healthcare, you know, locally more conveniently, like even in your own community, right, where they have fast care and the Walmart health clinics, etc. As we look forward, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you to look at the crystal ball a little bit here, Tashfin, and, and, and share with me, where do you think um, this whole concept of no patient left behind? I love it. I love that concept. Do you think that we're going to reach a state where the industry, all of the challenges around getting access to care kind of gets eliminated because now patients can can get care in multiple different modalities? What do you think the future is going to look like? I think certainly there will be a little bit more equalization to a certain extent. <laughs> I think the pandemic really has pushed us in, in general, not just to adopt telehealth or, you know, kind of the when I telehealth, I'm talking about like the actual video visit where there's like synchronous exchange of data. I think as physicians and as patients, we're going to become slightly more comfortable with getting healthcare delivery over a digital medium. Um, so that could be exchange of secure messages that could be coordinating care with, you know, mid-level providers that um, are able to kind of bridge that gap, basically leveraging digital technology a lot more. One of the things that I think we still need to figure out how to solve is, is 
is that there still is a relatively high level of health illiteracy um, amongst patients. And this actually spans the entire social economic spectrum. But unfortunately, it's a little bit more pronounced um, as you kind of go down to the lower social economic status. No matter how much, you know, to a certain extent, no matter how much technology you throw at something, some of that that educational gap needs to be addressed. And you can certainly use technology to address the educational gaps. Some of that access to care, I think, is kind of multifactorial, as, as is almost with everything in life. Some of it will will help, certainly, um, you know, having this technology and having doctors be more accessible. Um, and, you know, again, also the other important thing here is it'll be cheaper, too. Right now, obviously, if there's you know the finance of it is, is still in kind of flux because we're still in the COVID state. But I think so, eventually it'll settle to a point where, like doing a telehealth visit, will probably will be cheaper, but it'll be much more favorable for you know the, for the patients. But I think unfortunately, where technology can play a role, but I think there still is, is a significant gap is, is on this educational front, where despite all the technology you have, if a patient doesn't understand the importance of coming in for their annual diabetic foot exam. If they don't understand that, hey, as a patient, I don't feel bad, you know, my foot's not hurting. Why do I need to go for this? But they may not perceive that, you know, having someone to look at your foot on a regular basis can help you avoid, you know, losing the foot, you know, four or five years down the line. And so that that kind of little educational piece, unfortunately, it's, it, you know, you can shorten the gap and drive educational material exchange over digital technology. But, you know, I, I think there's still going to be significant gaps that raise there, that, that live there. And, you know, we, I think as a, as a whole, have to figure out what, how do we address those? And, it goes beyond technology. Tashfim, I really love this this conversation and the concept of no patient left behind. And this is something that's really inspiring. And I'm excited to have this conversation with you. People listening in, they may want to learn a little bit more about you and your company. What are some ways that they can find you online? They can certainly visit our website at uh, LumaHealth, L-U-M-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot I-O. And so they can kind of find a little bit more information there. I'd love to connect with folks who are just kind of thinking around the same lines, you know, in and who want to just have a conversation around how we can use technology. So please feel free to anyone who's listening, please, please feel free to email me directly. So my email is, it's my first name is T A S H F E E N at lumahealth.io. And I'd love to be able to connect with folks who, you know, are thinking similarly. And, and also please feel free to, sh- you know, connect with me on LinkedIn or on, on Twitter too. So I'm, I'm happy to exchange thoughts. I, I love to you know find people who are thinking on a similar wavelength because I often find it very inspiring um, both at a personal level, and also, you know, I think it's inspiring for us as, as a company to be able to connect with folks who are trying to tackle similar problems and, and, and interested to hear, you know, how they're doing it. Because, you know, I think one important thing is that there's a lot we can learn from each other and we need to keep the channels open so that we can be inspired by each other and really, you know, tackle this problem as a whole, as a healthcare system. As, so as we move forward, we, we leave this as a better place. I love it. You're starting a movement. And um, we're going to link to all of that in the show notes so people can reach out to you. I strongly also endorse uh, connecting with you because there's some. this is a great conversation and a, and a very noble one. Tashfim, thank you so much for your time today. And we'll have to have you back on to talk more about this ever-growing movement that you're building. Yeah, I love it. And thank you for, so much for the opportunity. It's been great. All right, special thanks to Dr. Tashfim Ekram for coming on the show uh, from Luma Health and uh, sharing a little bit of what they're doing. Very, very cool. Uh, Certainly great to have expertise as always. 
We're going to point out just a couple of conferences that are coming up. You've got one in October, the Smash Conference. Is that right? Yes, that's right. The Smash Conference on October 19th through the 23rd. I will be uh, leading it off with a two-hour workshop on building a B2B2C strategy for the post-acute setting. Also coming up in October is the ShishMed Connections Bytes Conference October 26th through 28th. And this is uh, kind of the annual member meeting, if you will, workshops, seminars, uh, social networking, all that kind of fun stuff. We'll have a link in the email as well. And then uh, on over into November, about mid-November, will be HCIC at Home. Mm -hmm. And so this is to take place of the annual conference that uh, the Healthcare Internet Conference typically happens uh, in the fall every year, certainly. And uh, this year, like everybody, it will be virtual. You can find out more again in the newsletter about that one. Yeah, and a big spoiler alert, we're going to be part of that conference, you and I, read. So stay tuned for that. That's right. That's right. More to come there. Okay. Let's do recommendations. What do you have today? Well, Reed, since we're spending all of our time on Zoom calls and team calls and go-to-meeting calls, etc., I realized that while my camera on my MacBook is, is okay, I mean, it's not the best, right? It's, it's not bad. I just realized that there was a need for me to invest in a little bit of a, a better camera. And in particular, I've been reading a lot about also lighting and ring lighting, you know, putting the ring light in front of you to kind of light up your face, make it more clear. So anyway, I did some research and I found a great affordable uh, external camera that adjust- that's a USB camera that has 1080p high definition. It has a little tiny camera in the middle with a ring light on the outside that you can kind of touch and light up if you need to. And it works on Google Meetings and Zoom and whatever it might be. That's what I'm going to recommend. The AngeTube, A-N-G-E, maybe I'm not saying that right. The AngeTube streaming 1080p high definition webcam. Really great, affordable new webcam. It's got its own little stand. The stand is very adjustable. You can put it on the back of your computer screen or whatever it may be, or on top of your monitor, plug it in through your USB port, and boom, you got high definition, really great, really great looking video. uh, It feels like almost like I invested in a home studio. That's how good it is. Wow. That's what I'm going to recommend. Well, there you go. I'm actually going to recommend another podcast. Have you listened to Smartless? No. Tell me more. Smartless is a podcast with Jason Bateman, Sean Hayes, and Will Arnett, which just in and of itself is amazing. It's a podcast that they say connects and unites people from all walks of life to learn about shared experiences through thoughtful dialogue and organic hilarity. (laughs) I like organic hilarity. That's kind of like our podcast, isn't it? (laughs) It was a great band, too. So anyway, so they they basically, uh, in each episode, one of the hosts reveals his mystery guest to the other two. And what kind of comes from that is improvised conversation filled with laughter, etc. So the idea is these three guys are doing this show and one of them's in charge of bringing somebody, kind of show and tell, if you will. And so if you scroll back through... Like season one, it's folks like Jimmy Kimmel, Maya Rudolph, Robert Downey Jr., Will Ferrell, uh, et cetera. So some really cool guests from from different backgrounds, certainly. And it, it makes for a fun just kind of listen of people just asking, talking. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to listen to that. It sounds like a good escapist listening. 
That's right. And another kind of sub recommendation there is Amazon Music. It's uh, new. You can get an app. They have podcasting. We're actually on there. And uh, it's just kind of a different, little bit of a different experience. And so if you're looking for a new podcast app to try out, try out the Amazon Music app. All right. Well, another great episode. Again, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you happen to listen, whether that is Apple Podcasts, whether that's Amazon Music, streaming on Spotify or somewhere else. We certainly appreciate it. Rate, review is still one of the best ways that other folks can find us. Navigate over to touchpoint.health and check out kind of what we're doing on the network, some of the other shows and sign up for the TPS report while you're there. We would certainly appreciate it. And we hope you'll come back next time. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith. Thanks for listening. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.